Reason for Time, Episode 4, a podcast about truth, invention, memory, and how they all came together in a novel. Last episode, I talked about a major theme of the book, belief. So what makes a believer different from a skeptic, bravery different than stupidity? When Maeve agreed to go to the lake with Desmond, was it courage or naivety? What drove her? For readers to believe, to accept Maeve, that part of her character had to be deeply established. She's young, of course, and gullibility comes with the territory. But she is also fascinated with the unknown forces that steer our lives. It's why she was so attracted to the magician and spiritualist Anna Eva Fay. This comes naturally from her culture, for the Irish have always been a superstitious lot. Country folk used to believe that it was bad luck to put shoes on a table or chair, place a bed facing the door, bring a lilac into the house, cut your fingernails on Sunday, give a knife as a gift, or wear green, except for a bit of shamrock or ribbon on St. Patrick's Day. And don't forget the good people, or fairies, who are not the smiling fellows you find at the end of the rainbow, especially an advertisement for certain kinds of soap, but could be meddlesome. The agents of karma, as Maeve recalls. The piece of cake you saved for yourself under your pillow suddenly gone to remind you of your selfishness, but a wandering pig miraculously found before she fell into the hands of some family hungrier than your own. Another belief is that a child born after midnight and before dawn will have the power to see these good people or fairies. I decided that both Maeve and her mother were born during those hours and came with the gift, or curse, which influences some of Maeve's decisions. She came to America believing she would have a better life, and needing that faith much as all the other things an immigrant needs a job, a place to live, a future. She was also prepared to explain events to herself as meant to be. If Packy hadn't died, if I hadn't worked at the Chicago Magic Company, she is not quite following a line of crumbs out of the forest of problems that have challenged her. But she thinks she is, and that justifies a lot. Remember that women wage earners were poorly paid. Maeve earns little more than 10 a week, and out of that comes her share of rent for a single room, food, clothes, streetcar fares, and any entertainment. She and her sister Margaret love the movies, but if they go to a movie, it means cutting back on food until payday. When a young woman arrived alone in Chicago, probably at Union Station like Maeve and her sister did, She might be approached by a fellow offering rooms or even a job. You'd think a poor girl would know that she was asking for trouble by accepting any offer from a strange man. But many innocents did not. The little money they had would be stolen and they would be left to themselves in bug-ridden boarding houses or worse. The most desperate turned to prostitution, even part-time, to supplement wages as a waitress or store clerk. Of course, not all women adrift were innocent. Streetwise gold diggers mined the pockets of well-off men attracted to their youth and beauty. That was another side of the story. 
but social workers such as the renowned Jane Addams, who co-founded the multi-purpose service agency Hull House, tried to provide relief and alternatives. Some women helped each other by banding together to rent houses for themselves. Others endured just awful conditions described by the socially conscious novelists of the era, such as Sinclair Lewis, Upton Sinclair, who exposed the horrors of the meatpacking industry in his book, The Jungle, and Theodore Dreiser with his sister, Carrie. These writers will come up in a later episode when I talk about influences. But the question I asked at the top of this episode about bravery or stupidity I don't think it was either in Maeve's case. She saw an opportunity in Desmond, a future, and she was in love. Here's Ethel Wittius Maeve on the Friday of that stifling week in Chicago. Finally, day's end, and all we office workers on the street at once. A car pulled up, clanging. No Desmond Malloy, though if he didn't stick his head out the opened windows, how would I have known that the pushing crowds blocked the view? Had to be steaming in there with all those bodies, but a lovely gale swept through the canyon between the tall buildings, and it being shady, I could wait. There was even a water fountain and a trough for watering horses, but filled so with garbage. In the going-home bustle of the streets, I took refuge in the pages of the newspaper I had yet to study. So it was the early edition I'd hung on to, and there'd been more news since then as the strong-throated ones hollered. Fitzgerald's wife says he knows. Courts decide beer is beer. Browns and socks and hot fight for second. Negro crime tales a lot of bunk, says Sandberg. Soon I was bargaining with myself as another car pulled up. People jostled on and clacked off. If I didn't see his mug craning out the window the very next car, I'd better step on anyway for my waistbands loosening around my body. I'd enough paper left to feed my curiosity and entertain myself with the funnies, Mutton Jeff, Dorothy Darnett, while I enjoyed a piece of pie and a second cup of coffee in the Halstead Thompsons. I'd sit there with all the other single girls, came to find a new life in the city, and ended up under the glaring lights hung from the ceiling of the room or individual chairs, with their one arm wide enough for your plate in your cup, ensured they'd stay single. Not so many horses, and good so, for the streets were cleaner, but here stood one, a poor creature, dirty grey, though it could have been a white as a fairy horse if someone had given it a good scrub. Exhausted, stopped in the car tracks. Wouldn't move despite the driver pleading with it, then whipping it with a switch, then getting down and applying his boot directly to the horse's rump. The nag shifted herself as far as the curb, then stopped as if she'd reached her barn. One of them ladies looked like the speakers on the woman's voting, always sported the big hats and the spectacles, marched over and spoke to the owner, waved her finger at him, no doubt scolding. There were ladies took it on themselves to fix all the wrongs they saw. Women with an education and fathers rich enough they didn't have to work, but could go around meddling in other people's business, or so said a letter to the editor in the Daily News. State Street soon wouldn't allow the horses and buggies, not with the future going to motor cars, but we were in the in-between stage, had bits of what had gone before and all that was to come. The horse planned to stay right where she'd planted herself, thankfully off the tracks, because another car came clanging up. Desmond Malloy had not forgot me. 
I saw a smile beaming brighter than the brass buttons on his jacket, and I knew I'd be going home with an extra nickel to spend at Thompson's. There you are, darling. He squeezed my arm, all the while grinning over at me with one eye wandering to the box, making sure no one stuck on board without depositing their fares unless he gave them a sign. Grinning at me, Maeve Cura, and didn't it make me forget the crowding, the stink? Poor Irene Miles and Janet Wilkinson, the trouble at the car barn, coloreds and whites fighting each other right outside President Wilson's door, and every other tragic thing as we moved up Madison toward Halstead, him calling out the street names in his own comical way. Clinton, Jefferson, they plans, dis dem their plans for those of you looking for it. I nodded as if speaking to the woman sitting down in front of me, the one's face had wrinkled with a question. That's right, this is Clinton coming up, and he's the man we'll tell you the next if this is not your stop. And if you didn't notice, by the way, it's me his smile is meant for. Then he's standing next to me, talking in a voice, whispery enough no one else could hear, then eyebrows of his framing a gaze trickled over me like a cool stream. There's more trouble down at the barns, Maeve, dear. I had to take another shift so as my pal could go speak to the bosses, as he's one of the big union men. We'll have to make Sunday your next lesson, what do you say? You won't disappoint me, will you? Disappoint him. He took my wide-open eyes to mean surprise, not knowing my true thoughts concerning this situation, that anyone should think me the body with power to disappoint. Gentler then and closer, like a blessing on my head, the smell of tobacco assuring me it had a break. I turned up a face displayed what? The tingle between my shoulder blades, my hopes, while in the scheming part of my mind I was thinking I'd be able to put together a better outfit, find a proper towel, maybe line up for shoes after all, because you never know what'd be left from bundle day. Or go to the open market on Max Maxwell Street with money to spend, since tomorrow's the day Mr. R would be coming around with our pay envelopes. It wasn't like Desmond had be stood me up. In fact, he was trying to sit me down. Pulled over to a young colored man sprawled on a bench at the back, his arms slung across the rim of the bench, discouraging office workers from sitting down next to him, because his loose clothes took up as much or more room than he did on account of their ripe smell. No one taught you your manners, Desmond said, kicking right at the fellow's scuffed boot to get his attention. Don't you know to offer your seat when there's a lady standing nearby? Sleepy eyes widened in a face itself no wider than a Bible spine. I wouldn't mind sitting, sure, though some ladies took it as an insult when a colored offered a seat as if their skin were not naturally dark but dirty and it soiled the place somehow. Letters in the paper said they didn't know how to behave in the city those colored farm folk hopped the train north. They didn't know you were not supposed to wear your overalls without a shirt underneath. Didn't know you were supposed to give yourself a good scrub every day. This is how it was done in America. For all I could say about the Sisters of Perpetual Grace, they had taught us customs our mammy wouldn't have known to teach us. We'd never been as clean as we got to be at that mission and since, but no one ever worried about it so much at home, where some sort of wash on the Saturday before church had always been sufficient with the whole bath saved for Christmas and Easter. The way the boy got up and hunched over to the strap nearest the back exit made my stomach shrink. There you go, darling, said Desmond, proud of himself. I couldn't refuse, could I, and the seat still warm from that fellow skinny arse. Him studying the window with narrowed eyes wouldn't have hurt if I troubled to say thank you. There were as many papers in the evening as in the morning, including your final editions with the box scores and trance the city. 
On that Friday evening, every paper there on every pile at the Halstead stop had pictures of little Janet on the front page, though on the bigger papers her sweet face had moved beneath the fold. She would disappear from the news altogether if they didn't find her soon. It's just one child, after all, and sad as it was, working people wouldn't be able to get to their employment if the car men went out, and with the prices of everything gone up, how could you pay for anything if you couldn't get to work? Trouble everywhere. Jewelry store robbed of eight thousand. Guard attacked in daylight. Mayor says send war profiteers to Pokey. The news eased like beads on a string all along Halstead. But I turned in at Thompson's, where I chose a seat with a view to the door and watched the girls coming in. Plenty like me, the young ones. But older ones, too. A man in white had to be Bridie's age, him steering her forward and her looking at him like he knew everything in the world. Maybe they'd been married as long as the couple whose picture I saw in the paper fifty years, and they're merely stopping that evening to save her fixing a meal. Or maybe there was some other story behind them. They left my thoughts as quickly as they entered and found their place because a fellow in a carman's uniform stepped in next. My heart stopped because the first sight of him made me think he was Desmond. He was that tall, but his pug face and hair that lay almost over one ear denied it, thankfully, because a chippy girl hung on his arm, curled pasted to her forehead, and big spots of rouge on, on her cheeks like the Cupid dolls you could win at Riverview. Smell of hamburger steak, mashed potatoes gone crusty, but enough gravy would perk them up. Thanks to my man and the car fare he'd saved me, I ate my fill and was lingering with the second cup of coffee like I'd promised myself. Not reading the funnies, as I'd planned, but basking in the memory of that sweet whisper come down through the weave of my hat. Disappoint me. I was gazing towards the food counter at the farm scene above, made out of little colored tiles, same as the discovery of Chicago in the Mar Marquette building had been formed out of tiles, that being the fashion then, making whole pictures out of little pieces of various colors, when a pair of ladies entered and looked around for a place to sit. Ladies like the kind talked to the man with the horse. Their eyes lit on the two chairs across from me, empty as if waiting for them. I pretended to be fumbling with something in my bag, but it did no good, because they'd noticed me, Noticed them, and soon they were there, and one of them, with a voice like a river, said, Good evening, dear. I was reminded of the nuns would talk to me that way sometimes. Dear, not the way Desmond said it, and knowing the nuns and what they turned out to be, some of them, I took a big gulp of my coffee and it burned my mouth, and didn't I yell, but despite myself. Oh, my, you must have hurt yourself, miss. Sir, sir. She hurried up to the counter, calling to the fellow there for a glass of water, which came in an instant. She had that way about her. Everybody listened. Just let it sit there in your mouth for a minute. They introduced themselves, Harriet and Claire, and if it had been Margaret instead of me, she'd have chattered on about Claire being the name of the county we came from in Ireland and telling most of our story, not all, for Margaret and I never confessed why we ran from the nuns or how, only that we decided we hadn't a vocation. These ladies, especially Claire with her river voice, were not so bad as that letter to the editor made them out to be. They fanned themselves with one of the newspapers, had sometimes called them man-haters, and commented on the weather, and then didn't they offer to buy me some ice cream to soothe my burned tongue? If they were not the company I wanted, they were company all the same, and ice cream was ice cream, and my mouth did burn. I knew that nothing in this life came absolutely free, and yet the price of the dessert seemed to be nothing but information, where I came from, where I lived, where I worked. 
sneaking in a way to find out my age, which is plenty old enough to be on my own, and how long have you called Chicago your home, and do you have a boat? Not more than a sentence did it take to satisfy them. I'd established myself in rooms with my sister, and the fluid got my bow, for I didn't know that I should mention Desmond Malloy. Even the name in my head, wanting to spill out, made me burn the same as if the coffee had scalded me all the way down. You're one of the fortunate ones, then, despite the sad loss of your intended. What are you called, dear? Here we are, talking like old friends, and we don't even know your name. She laughed at this as if hours instead of minutes had passed here among the clatter of dishes and the shouts of the cooks in the countermen. I answered her at the same time, running my fingers over another name in fancy script on the outside of my coffee cup, spelled Thompson. They were out that night, Claire and Harriet, visiting the tenements to tell people in the neighborhood about the goings-on at Hull House. You must know it, made, they said. And who wouldn't have known that building sprawled along Halstead? A promise you wouldn't die of it, whatever the trouble was. Shabby, but solid, sitting there, and the odd sights you saw from the windows of the streetcar. A woman covered in flour and her carrying an empty sack and standing on the doorstep. The people lined up for whatever was being handed out on food day. I guess you know what a fine apartment building for working girls we have. They run it themselves, girls like you, Maeve, and your sister, just over on Polk Street. So if you're ever in a spot, you know, you can come over and take a look. You ask for me, should you need to. When Margaret lived in, I pondered such places, cheaper than the women-only residences downtown, like the ones where Ruth lived. When I passed the West Side YWCA, and that was often enough at being in the neighborhood, I looked over and even stepped inside once. But didn't it smell like charity? Remind me of the mission and all we'd been made to feel there. Thankful, inferior, ashamed. Cherry didn't come free neither. This Claire then unpinned her hat and took it off, and I saw her hair match the pale wheaten colour of Margaret's, and I liked her looks better without the hat. She had a wide mouth, and her smile unhid a gold tooth not far back. Added some years to her. She could have been Mammy's age, or older even. My heart opened a bit. She was that kind I thought of telling her something would bind us, the way confidences do, but what? Never Desmond, not the story of us hiding out in the bushes near naked. No, women like that would reel off all the dangers before grabbing my arms and sweeping me off to their hull house or Polk Street or somewhere they could keep me safe. Weren't there people already coming into our office building and distributing them pamphlets showing men in black fedoras waiting to nab girls from the train station? Yet for all the warnings, the saddest thing had been nobody had ever noticed me. Nobody had tried to cost me or lure me. I didn't seem to make an impression on the city at all until the evening Packy found me at the church hall. Then Desmond Malloy picked me out from among all the others on his car. I couldn't talk about Desmond so soon, but something. My sister. How she'd settled on a man, and what would I do when she went off with him? The thought sprung up as if freed and pressed against my skin, something I never knew had been crouching there inside. I might consider it, I said, because Margaret will be leaving with her Harry soon. They're leaving to be married at Christmas, and they'll want their own place short. Claire reached across the space between our one-armed chairs and patted my knee as if I needed comforting. Why don't you pay a visit to the Polk Street building? You'd be surprised to find girls just like you. You'd never be lonely there. They go out in the evenings together. It wouldn't be your sister, but the next best thing. Lonely was not something I planned to be ever again, but what she didn't know wouldn't hurt her. Just remember where we are if you need anything, dear. 
Their suppers were getting cold, and they set about eating, and we all fell silent for a spell, until I saw there was nothing for it but to leave. Thanks to Ethel Witte, Alley Impress of Chicago, Harris Dixon, Hans Nelson, and the incomparable Scott Joplin, whose music you're hearing, for helping make this podcast. And thanks to you for listening. You can learn more about the novel on the Reason for Time Facebook page, where you can post a question or leave a message, and find the book itself online or in the brick-and-mortar bookstores such as Spoonbill and Sugartown Books in Brooklyn, or ask for it at the library. Be sure to tune into Episode 5 to hear more about what I did to create Maeve's character. I'm Mary Burns. Bye for now. 